great to see all of you. I uh, want to encourage you to take your Bibles out. You know, the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery, understanding it. And so every week we take our Bibles, we open it up. Turn to Romans chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there's a Bible in the, in the seat rack in front of you. Uh, so you can, you can follow along as we uh, look at Romans chapter 5, the first 11 verses today. So we're launching a brand new series today. Uh, for those of you who are new with us, uh, we covered the first four chapters of Romans a few weeks, months ago. Uh, then we did a series on justice. We're back to Romans, and we're going to be doing it in four different series. Uh, it tells one story, but there are four distinct sections, and we're in the second section right now, which is Romans 5 through 8, and the theme that we're going to be exploring, which is the theme that the Apostle Paul explores throughout those chapters, is resilience, a resilient faith, and resilient faith is a faith that is going to be grounded in the gospel. So some of you may remember uh, back in 2014, there was a social uh, media campaign that revolved around some girls in Nigeria who had been, uh, had been kidnapped by one of the terrorist groups there, Boko, Boko Haram. Haram. And, and so 276 girls had been kidnapped. They were all seniors uh, in a school. And uh, as with most things, uh, it's, we move on to something else. And so I was a little surprised when I read an article this just within the last week or so that talked about uh, these gals and talked about the fact that about 100 of the 276 were released in 2016 and in 2017. And so there was more to the story, uh, and I didn't know that HBO even did a, a documentary on it in 2018. So the article is written by a couple of Wall Street Journal journalists who went and interviewed extensively some of the gals that had been released. And there had been a, a deal between the government and Boko Haram and so uh, that nobody really knows the details of, but there had been a deal and these girls had been released. And these guys went and what they found was a story of, of kids who had really suffered in, in huge, huge ways. The ones that were released were probably those that had not given in to the pressures, which you can imagine why they would, but the pressures to marry the fighters, they were pressured for that. They were pressured to buy into the creed of Boko Haram, which was primarily girls shouldn't get uh, any kind of education. And so, and the ones that resisted suffered a lot. I mean, they were, they, they were close to starvation at times. They were eating things that they shouldn't even be eating. There's even a story in the article about a girl that, that killed an ant to take the the crumb that was on top of the ant that the ant was carrying. That's how hungry they were. What the journalists discovered in their interviews, though, was something that they said in all the other media around the return of these girls had been missed. And the thing that had been missed um, is, is this. This is what they, they write. They say, we saw clearly how the teenagers will to survive was inseparable from their religious convictions. Most of the students were Christian members of the Church of the Brethren. These young women had endured three years of captivity, deprivation, and pressure to convert by holding on to their friendships and their faith. At the risk of beatings and torture, they whispered prayers together at night and memorized the book of Job from a smuggled Bible. Into secret diaries, they copied Luke 2 because they saw themselves in Mary's ordeal of giving birth to Jesus. They transcribed paraphrases of psalms in loopy teenage handwriting. Oh my God, I keep calling by day and you do not answer. 
and by night, and there is no silence on my part. Now, you can read an excerpt of that book, and um, I've put the link in the sermon application guide at the very end. Uh, you, can, you can find where that is or what the title. The title is Whispered Prayers, Hidden Bible, Secretly Scribbled Verses Inside the Resilient Faith of the Bring Back Our Girls Hostages. So that got my attention because the series, of course, is on resilience. So one way to look at the story of these girls is to explore, you can explore the faith, how it is that their faith sustained them. You can ask, how is it that their faith sustained them? But I want to I invite you to think of it in a little bit of a different way. I want to I invite you to think of it in terms of how is it that their faith was sustained under such difficult circumstances? How is it that as they wrote out psalms that speak about God not answering your prayers, that they didn't just feel abandoned by God and walk away from their faith, but they held on to the faith. How is it that that could happen? Because we're talking about a resilient faith. I can count, I can't count how many people I've met in everyday life who, when they find out I'm a pastor or because a conversation turns to something spiritual, they say, well, I, I left the church. I kind of walked away from God back when... X happened to my family member or whatever, and God didn't answer our prayers. So how is it that these girls can go through these horrors for all that time and their faith stays strong and even strengthens during that time? So contrast these girls with kind of a whole series for the last couple of years of stories, Instagram posts, podcasts, and everything about Christian celebrity pastors, musicians, singers, that kind of a thing who have walked away from their faith, and they tell their story of walking away from their faith. And, and um, there was one in particular from a couple of years ago who spoke about how there's all these doubts and questions that assa- were assailing him, and that everybody should have these doubts. And he says, nobody is talking about these things. Nobody's talking about these things. So, you know, when I read it, I kind of was a little puzzled when he said that, but I, I was reading David French was talking about it. He's a lawyer and a journalist, and he was talking about that particular story, and he tries to be really non-judgmental, and he says, you know, I can't speak to this person in particular, but he, he kind of fails at it um, because you can tell he's fed up, and he probably wrote it on a day when he was feeling angry. So he, 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 he says this, this you can see is frustrating, he says, no one talks about preachers falling, a lack of miracles, alleged biblical contradictions, or the challenge of hell? You simply cannot grow up in an evangelical church without discussing many of these things incessantly. You have seen the same thing many times. This is what he says here. And again, this captures something that I want to talk about for a moment. He says, you see adults fall away in the face of pressures of the world, rationalizing their departure with words that ring true to everyone except Christians who know what the church is really like. And so maybe you've had this experience because what happens in a lot of these stories, these deconversion stories, uh, what oftentimes happens is the person who is deconverting and telling their story paints the church with these broad brushes. Now, maybe their experience... I, I don't want to doubt them, you know, that their experience was bad with this church or with these Christians or whatever it was. I, I, I understand that. Those things happen, and they happen a lot. Uh, but they paint with these broad brushes that you look at it kind of in the, along the ways that French talks about it there, and you go, I'm, I, I see glimpses of what you're talking about in me and in our church, but that is not really a fair or accurate representation 
of, of certainly the churches that I've been a part of and that many of the Christians that I know of have been a part of. So um, French goes on to offer what I think is really an important insight, and he uses a lot of big words, so I'll, I'll translate here in a moment. Um, uh, some, some of these adults are retreating from faith, not because they're ignorant of what it teaches or, the lack, uh, or they lack necessary intellectual theological depth, but rather because the difficulty of holding on to doctrine that's countercultural grows too great. In other words, we believe things that Christians that the rest of the culture doesn't believe in, and the pressures get, are getting harder and harder to hold on to those beliefs. And he says, um, so he, he adds this, and this is, this is the point that I want to get to. The failure of the church is not so much of teaching, that means, but of fortification, of building the pure moral courage and resolve to live your faith in the face of cultural headwinds. So Jesus talked about this. Jesus tells a parable that many of you are familiar with. It's a parable of the four soils. It's about a, a farmer who's casting seed, right? And he talks about four different kinds of soils. It's only in the last soil that the seeds take and grow all the way to harvest. And so when he gets with his disciples, he explained the parable, and he explains what each seed represents. And uh, if we had time to read it, we would. I did last night, but I went so late that I've had to cut all kinds of things. So if they can't cut, keep up with me, uh, blame me, not them back there. All right, so here's, here's what he said. He said, um, some people, the seed falls and the soil, they lack understanding, and he combines it with satanic deception because he says Satan comes along and snatches it away. Another group of seeds, it doesn't take because persecution sets in. And it's hard to believe when people are making your life really, really difficult or painful. Uh, it's hard to hold on. Uh, worries of this life, that covers a lot of things. That covers the anxieties of life, all the things that we worry about. It can cover a lot of doubts that we have. And then the deceitfulness of wealth, which can, of course, include deceitfulness of power, deceitfulness of, of um, uh, pleasure, the deceitfulness of so many things that sometimes we pursue instead of God. But then the final soil takes root. And so that's what this series is about. It's, it's about that final soil. What, what goes into that? Because that's what Paul is living, talking about in Romans 5 through 8. So the series is about resilient faith in the face of what French calls cultural headwinds. But it's about so much more. It's about resilient faith in the face of suffering, when we suffer. Uh, resilient faith in the face of doubts or deep, deep disappointment with Christians we've known, or a church that we are part of, or resilient faith in temptation, or even in giving in to temptation, resilient faith in misplaced confidence that sometimes we have in ourselves or in our religiosity and how religious we are, uh, resilient faith in persecution, and resilient faith under satanic attack. That's what the series is about. And so today we're looking at the beginning of that in Romans chapter 5, uh, the first 11 verses, and let's, uh, let's listen to the first five verses. Follow along in your Bibles, keep your Bibles open, but let's look at the first five verses uh, as one of our five ochres reads our passage. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. 
perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right, so in Romans 5, in a nutshell, Paul tells us that resilient faith, even in suffering, is a product of gospel hope. It's a product of gospel hope. I don't think most of us, I, I, I certainly don't think I do, have a real grasp on gospel hope. Sometimes we don't know what it means, and a lot of times we really don't have it. <laughs> we just don't have it. And so we're going we're gonna to take a deep dive into gospel hope and then how to strengthen it in our lives. All right, So we're going to do that in four different ways. We're going to start by talking about the meaning of hope. And so in context like this, Romans 5, when the word hope shows up, it means something very, very, very different than the way we use the word hope in English. I'm not sure why we keep translating it that way because it doesn't mean the same thing, uh, but we do keep translating it that way. Uh, really, what uh, gospel hope in context like this means confident anticipation. Um, we don't use that in that way in English. I want to give you a couple of illustrations or an illustration that will hopefully help you understand what it is that gospel hope means and how we use the word hope. So imagine that you have applied for your dream job, okay? You've applied for your dream job, but you haven't gotten the job yet. Or you have talked to your parents and said, next year, can we go to Disney World? <laughs> and your parents go, we'll think about it, all right? So at that point, you're waiting to get the job. You maybe have even had an interview, maybe you haven't even heard from them, or you've talked to your parents and they haven't, they've said, said, we're thinking about it, we'll see. At that point, you use the word hope in English. You say, I hope I get that job. Or, I hope we get to go to Disney World on vacation this next year. All right. That's how English works. If you are given the job, you have, you, someone calls you and say, you have the job. It's your dream job. You are celebrating. And it's going to start September 1st. You don't use the word hope anymore. You say, I hope I get the job. No, you got the job, right? It's just a matter of starting the job. I hope, I hope, okay? If your parents come and say, we bought the tickets, we're, we're flying out on Delta, and we've got the hotel reservations, and we bought all the tickets for the parks. You don't, from that point on, say, well, I hope we go to Disney World. Your parents would go, we're going to Disney World. Now, of course, things can happen that would make it you know, impossible to go, but at that point, your parents are saying, no, it is, it's going to happen. We're going to Disney World. It's planned. You don't use the word hope. What do you say? I can't wait. All right, I can't wait. English doesn't use the word hope to describe a feeling of anticipation of something that you fully know will happen, that you're confident will happen. It just doesn't use it that way. When the New Testament uses the word, it's not like our word, it would keep using the word hope after you got the job and before you start, after the tickets were bought and before you make it to Disney World. Hope is confident anticipation. It's, it's like it's a done deal. It hasn't happened yet, but you are confident you know it's going to happen. That is a huge difference. So when I talk about gospel hope giving us resilience to our faith, don't think of hope as something like, I kind of hope it happens, because that's not what it's talking about in Scripture. But it's more than confidence, too. 
It's more than just a confidence. It's also a feeling. It's an excitement. It's a, and I'll show you that in a second. So let's talk for a moment about the feeling of hope. There's an I can't wait quality with gospel hope. Not just confidence. It's that feeling as you're boarding the plane. You're not at Disney World yet, but you're boarding the plane to go. Okay, so there's that, that excitement. It's that feeling you're out shopping. This isn't going to be hopeful for anybody or, you know, exciting. But you're out shopping for clothes for that job that you're going to. All right? You know, it's all in. It's, you're confident of it. It's anticipation of it. And there's just this excitement, but it hasn't happened yet. You're just, you're just preparing for it. And to capture that excitement, the Apostle Paul uses a word that it is going to seem very strange to you. This word threw me off on my sermon preparation. I, I, I could say that literally two days I was not able to write anything on my sermon. Because I kept running up against this and, and going, what? It, and, and part of it is it, 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 happens, it, it happens when you're talking in conversation. It happens when you're reading the Bible. You have a preconceived notion of what that person is saying or what the Bible is saying. And you, 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 it's like in stone and you can't hear what it's actually saying. Or once it goes through, it doesn't compute. You go like, that doesn't make any sense at all. So the word that Paul uses is the word boast. All right? I'm like, that's just really weird until I really understood it. So, and what threw me off too is, I didn't know that that word occurred in this passage. I'm pretty sure I memorized this passage when I was younger. And it didn't use the word boast. Really threw me off. So here's, here's the deal. Um, the NIV, this NIV, that we use, uses the word boast. The English Standard Version and the old NIV that I grew up with and used well into my adulthood, well, well into my adulthood until just a few years ago when we started using this one, uses the word rejoice. All right? So I can understand rejoice in your suffering, not, which never means, or boast in your suffering doesn't mean, oh, yeah, wow, suffering. It's in the midst of suffering, I'm boasting. In the midst of suffering, I am um, rejoicing. All right? Rejoicing makes sense. Other passages talk about that. What in the world does boast mean? All right, so the uh, New American Standard Version and the N.T. Wright translation use the word celebrate. I like that one a lot. Uh, the NASB, the old, some of you grew up on this one, the New American Standard Version, uh, 1995 version uses the word exalt. I really like the word exalt, and I'll, I'll explain it why in a, in a, in a little bit. Um, the NIV, this NIV, uses the word boast in verse 2, and in verse 3, the same word occurs, and it uses the word glory. Talk about creating some confusion. It's a legitimate thing to do when you're translating, but it threw me off as I'm looking at this in, in detail. So what in the world, what's going on here? What is, what is Paul saying when he says boast? All right, so um, what Paul is saying is this, saying Having been made right with God, there is an I can't wait quality to what we're confidently anticipating and expecting. That's what he's trying to get through in this passage. And by using the word boast, he's making a point that this isn't just like an inner feeling I get. This is something that I express. Okay? All right. So, as I read it, boast. Boast in what? I boast in the glory of God. I glory or boast in the midst of 
my suffering. So as I read that, here came another wall for me because all of a sudden I had a, like a huge sense of conviction and challenge because I'm not sure I exult in the glory of God, which by the way, I'll show you. This is the second time. This happened last night, too. This has never happened before. Shut up. <laughs> Try and turn off the internet. It won't go off. Okay. Just in case. All right. Anyways. Um, I think it was the same place. There was something that sounds like, hey, Siri, in what I just said. Uh, anyways. I'm, I'm pretty sure I don't exult. Uh, when it says glory of God, what it's talking about is, and I'm going to show you in a little bit, it's talking about this future that's coming, the return of Christ, the renewal of all things, all things being made right. That's what it's talking about, actually. It's not just talking about the glory that God has now. It's talking about something that we're going to experience, and I'll show you in a few moments. But I'm, I know that I don't exult in what's coming nearly as much as I exult in what I have now. Now, we're a congregation living in a part of the country and of a financial ability that most of us live designer lives. I heard that term this week. I'm like, that really describes it, doesn't it? We get to choose where we're going to live. We get to choose where we're going to go to school. We get to choose what our occupation is going to be to some degree. So many things that we get to choose for ourselves. We design a life. And I have designed a life that I really love. I'm designed a life that I really love, and I exult in it. My mind went to where I live. That's where my mind went when I realized, boast in the glory of God. Do I do, I do that? Because I boast about where I live. I, I don't mean boast like brag. I'm talking about exalt. I exalt in where I live. So about a year and a half ago, we moved from Woodbury after living here for about 22 years. We moved to a little town of Prescott in Wisconsin, which isn't nearly as far as everybody thinks it is. It's like 17 minutes from here. All right, so um, we moved to the little town of Prescott, and we love our view. We're not on the river, but we can see the river. You can't see it here, but there's a highway right underneath, so that's what makes it affordable, all right? <laughs> so, um, but we have this, this great, great view, and we've got the downtown, and we walk downtown. We love walking downtown, and it's noisy, but it's beautiful. We, we absolutely love it. We call it our urban cabin, like being in the city, okay? You're going to have a lot of car noise and everything, motorcycles and trucks and all that kind of stuff. So I love where I live. I boasted it. Just ask me, why did you move? And I'm going to tell you all the things that I absolutely love about where that is. I was on vacation in a beautiful place just not too long ago, about three weeks ago. And I had that I can't wait quality to get back home, to sit in our in our. Um, porch, our, our screened-in porch, and watch a sunset from where we live. And so I exult in it. I, I boast in it. Here's the question, the convicting question. Do I exalt or rejoice or celebrate in my future hope like I do in my home? Now, I left a blank there because for you, it might not be your home. It might be um, your friends. It might be your grandkids. It might be your children might be the job that you have. Do I exult in my future hope like I do in my fill-in-the-blank? All right, so that's the feeling of hope. 
What is the object of hope? That's what I told you. It's something out there. Let me, let me, let me show you. So look at the, second, the last sentence in verse 2. So it says, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. What is it? Now, last night, I would have read you a whole bunch of sections from, uh, from chapter 8. We didn't get out to this morning, so I need to cut it. Um, so here's, here's what happens. Chapter 5 and chapter 8 are like bookends. In chapter 5, as you see, it introduces this whole idea of hope. In chapter 8, especially the second half of the chapter, it comes back to hope with a vengeance. I mean, it like pulls out all the stops. In chapter 5, it talks about our suffering and that we, you know, in spite of suffering, you are not going to be separated from God. You get to chapter 8, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, and it says nothing can separate you from the love of God, okay? And it just like builds a theology around it. I mean, it is this, and we're going we're gonna to plant there for a while, so we will take a look at that then. But I want to show you real quickly what it says about that future hope or what it says about the glory of God. This is the glory of God that it speaks of because it uses hope, glory of God, and then expands on it. So it's, it says that this hope of the glory of God, it's really speaking to the time when Christ returns, we are going to share in His glory. All right, so it's not just God's glory it's like we're going to be included in it. We'll talk about just what a big deal that is when we get to chapter 8. The glory that will be revealed in us. Not just God's glory, but a glory that we share in and it's going to be revealed in us. It's, it's a time when there's going to be the freedom and the glory of the children of God. So it's not just, again, the glory of God. It's our glory. How did we get it? Because it's been shared. He's shared his glory with us. Our adoption as sons. You say sonship. Well, of course, we're already in God's family. We're adopted into sonship, which means like a firstborn son in that culture. Um, but it is going to be completed. It's like the adoption papers, the whole thing, it's going to be completed at that point. We will get our sonship. There's going to be the redemption of our bodies. Think of the disease. Think of death. Think of accidents. Think of all that. There's going to be redemption of our bodies. We're going to get a new body, the resurrected body, like a resurrected body of Christ. That's what we are. That's, that's the hope. And we'll look at that, at the renewal of all things, at the second coming when Christ comes. So right now, I exult in where I live, in my wife, my grandkids, my, my sons, my friends. Does God not want that? So this is a question you might be asking. Does God want me to stop exulting in other things like my home, my family, or my friends? The answer is no, no, no. He wants me to exalt even more in Him and in our glorious future. That's what he's asking. It's like, don't even bring it down a notch. You love your kids. Your kids are important to you. You love your job. It's really important. Don't bring it down a notch. Raise up God. Put God in the rightful place, which is better than all of that, that glorious future that He has for us. How do we do that? How do we do that? Do we got to get hopeful, you know? It's not how it's done, all right? Paul, this isn't the whole of what it's done, but, but Paul gives us a lot of clues here. So uh, look at, again, the last sentence in verse 2 of Romans 5. Why did I turn to 8? And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that our suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. Now, here's what I want you. This is the other thing that threw me. 
I did not get this about this passage. Again, even though I've memorized it, I did not get this about this passage. It says, last sentence, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Then it says, not only so, but we also boast in our suffering, in the midst of our suffering. Okay, this is so important. This is, Paul is saying that as we enter into suffering, we already have gospel hope. He is not saying that as you enter into suffering, you didn't have hope, and it's actually going to refine you and grow you so that you have hope. No, we also hope, already, hope in suffering. So what is produced in us is a growth, a strengthening of that hope. So this is really important. Suffering doesn't produce biblical hope. It strengthens it. In fact, I suspect that if you enter suffering, if I enter into suffering, and my hope is not a biblical hope, my, my hope is more of an unbiblical hope, which is my hope is in my grandkids. My hope is in my home. You know? This is where I put all my emotion. This is where I put my primary loves, my affections. This is where I put it. That if you go in with that kind of hope, how do we get that kind of hope? Is when we accept Christ in order that, well, I get to heaven. If that's, if that's it, I accept Christ because it seems that I can live a better life with Jesus than without him. Well, what about when life gets really horrible? What about when life gets really, really difficult? So if I enter into hope without a biblical hope, into suffering without a biblical hope, chances are that faithless hope that I had will be taken away from me. It's going to fall away. Because it wasn't a biblical hope, something that looked beyond my immediate circumstances to circumstances that are real but are beyond the circumstances that I can, that I can see. So Paul outlines four ways to build that hope. And the first one is to believe. So a few weeks ago in Romans 4, Pastor Henry Michael talked about the difference between believe God and believe in God. Real big difference. We have to believe God. We have to believe God. So if you believe God when he says we were his enemies, traitorous sinners deserving of his wrath. Okay, that's Romans 1 through 3. Okay, Romans 1 through 3 makes the case, the Apostle Paul makes the case that, like, without Christ, you are, you are lost. Your destiny is not a good destiny because you have, you're a traitor to the king of the universe, and you've ruined his world, and you've ruined your life, and you don't bring honor to him, okay? So if you believe God when he says that in his word, then being at peace with him, which is how this passage starts out, because we have been made right with God, justified, we now have peace with God. We're no longer his enemies, not at war with him. And we have gained access into his grace, which means we can have a relationship with him. Well, if you believe God, it should change everything, right? It's like, wow, I was over here and now I'm here. So biblical hope starts with believing God believing what he says. And then God says, the hope that's out there, you have your hopes here. They're great. They're wonderful, okay? They're like a small glimpse of what is to come. 
They're a taste of what is to come. So if we believe God for that, then when we enter into suffering or anything else, temptation, whatever it is, our hope will stay strong. So we have to have this gut check. Do we believe God? Do we believe God? Second, we have to boast or exult. Um, again, if you ask me, why did you move to Prescott? Some people think that's crazy. Why would you move, you know, like the Packer country? I know, I know, it's terrible. Um, why would you move to Prescott? Little, little town. And isn't it far away? It's not that far away, but okay. Why would you move there? I, I might say something, well, just the other day, for example, we got our canoe, we put it on top of the car. It takes five minutes to do that. We drove two minutes, we put the canoe in, and we had a choice to go down the Mississippi or to go up the St. Croix. And man, it was just beautiful that day. Oh, it was perfect. What a day. And, and so, see, I'm exulting. Now, by the way, somebody said, boy, we heard a lot about Prescott in the sermon last night. Um, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, you can thank me. I could have boasted about my grandkids. Oh, and look, here she's eating. Oh, look, here she's smiling. Oh, here she's crying. Okay, I could have done that to you, and I didn't. Um, when people hear me exulting in Prescott, this is what happens a lot of times. The wife or the husband look at the other one and go, maybe we need to move. <laughs> like that. <laughs> because of our excitement, you know, uh, uh, about where we're, we're living. Um, Paul is saying, we need to exalt and boast in what's out there. We need to exalt and boast in what's out there when, when God, when Christ returns and everything is made right. What happens when we do that? What happens when we do that? Well, uh, when we do that around people who don't have that same faith, people who don't know God personally, who haven't been made right with God through Christ, and we're boasting in the hope of the glory of God, there is, there's something that happens in a lot of people. God is working in their lives, and they start thinking, maybe I have to, I have to look into this, this faith that you're talking about. I never really thought of it that way. When we're exalting and boasting, this is why I like the word exalt better than rejoicing. Rejoicing sounds like something like inside I'm feeling, woo-hoo-hoo. Exalting requires some expression. Okay, I'm exalting in this. I'm boasting in God. All right, so it requires some, some expression. And when we do that, and, and we're going to do it in different ways. In the second service, at the end of the service, when I'm done with the benediction and I go out, there's a gal, many of you know her, and she goes, Woohoo, Pastor Henry, way to go. All right. Um, and there's others of you who walk up to me afterwards and go, uh, Sermon, not bad. <laughs> and somebody's with you that knows you really well and goes, That's a big compliment coming from that person. Okay. Okay. So the way that we exalt, is different with our personalities, but there is something that we're doing, okay? We're, we're expressing, we're expressing it. That's why I like that. What does that do? It strengthens the hope of our fellow believers. That's why corporate worship is so important. Why Christianity is not designed to be done alone. Why your hope will erode if you are not encouraging others and hearing the encouragement of others to glorify God and what's coming. And, and so... You help others, you bring glory to God, you also help yourself. You bring, you bring uh, people who are far from God, but you also help yourself 
What happens when you get excited about something? Have you ever planned a vacation and really the, the excitement about going is better than the actual vacation itself? <laughs> now, it's not going to be that way. Paul says our hope will not disappoint us, okay? But it's that excitement that as you're talking about it, your own excitement is building within your own heart. We exalt to lift up hearts, our own and the hearts of others. So, number three. So, we believe God, we exalt. How are we going to grow this hope? We suffer. <laughs> suffer grows our hope because when we endure it, it deepens our character, Paul says. It deepens our character. We get this perseverance, which is single-mindedness, and character, which is poise that comes through difficult experiences. All right. So, um, Let's, let's fast forward here to the next quote, because this is the point that Paul is making. Suffering removes false sources of confidence, doesn't it? Tim Keller said that. It removes false sources of confidence. You've gone through suffering. You've gone through something really difficult, a relative who has died or uh, an illness that has impacted your life. And all of a sudden you realize, I had these false sources of, of confidence in my life. And I've got I've to find something that I can hold on to. God is the one that we can hold on to in those times. Peter Nelson puts it this way. He says, The dark night of the soul is a means of weaning believers from their destructive dependence on anything but the Lord himself. Contrary to superficial American expectations, God does some of his best work when we can't make life work. God does some of his best work when we can't make life work. When all the outward measures, you look at our lives, chaos, destruction all around us. So we believe God. We exult in that hope that he gives us. We suffer. And in the midst of suffering, we are exalting. We continue to exalt. Finally, there's reason and reflection. Hope is not automatic. It's not like you become a Christian and now, woo, inside, I'm just so excited. I can't wait for this thing to happen. It's not automatic. As you read through this passage, you get the very strong sense that Paul knows he needs to build up people's hope. He's reasoning with them. He's telling them, this is what you believe. He's doing theology, applied theology. It's why theology is so, so important. It's important to know and understand your faith. It's important to know and understand theology, which is to know and reflect on the reasons for your hope for that anticipation, for that excited anticipation. So I'm going to read Romans 5, 1 through 11 right now. That's how we're going to conclude, and then we're going to begin our response with communion. And so hear it from that perspective that Paul is bringing uh, about having this hope of what is out ahead of us and how we can know when we get there it's going to be good, okay? So therefore... Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also boast in our suffering. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our, into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, just at the right time, 
when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for, some, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have been justified by His blood, how much more? This, this is the reasoning. He's like, how much more? He's not going to say it just once. He's going to say it twice. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? If, for if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through whom, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also received reconciliation. We boast every week as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We boast in what God has done. We exalt in what God has done for us. Jesus took the bread and he said, this bread, this is my body broken for you that's in your place. We, we glory in that. Let's glory together. He took the cup and he said, this is my blood which has been shed for you. It's for the remission of sin. It's a new covenant with me. It's a new agreement with me. Let's exalt together. Father, we thank you um, for all that you've given us that we can boast about. Um, we have some more than others. We have things to boast about here on this earth that we love. But Father, something so much greater, eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. Father, help us to hold on to that, to, to see it, to experience it more and more, to believe you when you say that we are now right with you and that we have a glorious future ahead and that we can have that by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name.